Hey friends, good morning. Really good to be with you. If you're visiting today, really thankful that you're here. Uh, my name's Evan. If I haven't had the chance to meet you, I would love the opportunity to after the service. Um, I want to begin with a question that I want answers uh, to. What's wrong with the world? Seriously, shout, shout some things out. What's wrong with the world? Paper straws, all right. Let's get some better answers than that. What's wrong with the world? TikTok. <laughs> TikTok. This is going a different direction. What else? Power hungry. Power hungry. Yes, what else? Death. Death. What else? Abuse. Abuse. Sin. Greed. Greed, yes. Right, there's something wrong with the world. Uh, in London, in 1905, there was a letter published entitled, What's Wrong with the World? And there's this Christian author named G.K. Chesterton. Any Chesterton fans in here? Okay. Uh, Chesterton is this eccentric, brilliant, uh, hilarious Christian thinker and apologist. And he wrote in a response to the Daily News to be published uh, to this letter entitled, What is Wrong with the World? And he said, I am. I am wrong. This spring, we've been going through the book of Genesis, the book of the origins of the universe, of mankind, um, of this, the beginning of this grand story of scripture that answers and begins to address all sorts of things of what, it, what is it to be human? What is it to live in the created world? What is work? What is marriage? What is sexuality? All of these things in these opening chapters of Genesis. And up until now, we've been in the first two chapters of Genesis. Uh, this picture of Eden, where God dwells with his people. He is in relationship. His people work and cultivate and care for the garden alongside God. As God said, it is good. It is good. It is unimaginably good. We left last week, we ended chapter two, and the last sentence of chapter two has this statement that is almost inconceivable to our human experience. So what it says, the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Naked and not ashamed. But there was no shame, there was no shame in the garden. Spiritual, emotional, relational, physical, in every sense, there was no shame. It was good. So I'm gonna ask Jonathan to come read our scripture passage this morning, because we're gonna enter into chapter three and see where does it all go wrong, to see the beginning of this question of what is wrong with the world. Genesis 3, one through 13. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. 
and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, and he said to him, Where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Okay, so we got a lot going on here in this, the beginning of chapter 3. Um, we're introduced to this serpent character and probably lots of questions about him, like who is he, where did he come from, uh, how is he talking, and why are the humans not surprised by that? Um, why is he crafty, and how did he get that way? And these are all good questions, which as we progress throughout scripture, we will find some of the answers to. But here in our text in Genesis 3, God isn't particularly interested in answering that question of who is the serpent and how did he get to be this way? No, here God is interested in answering who we are and how we got to be the way we are. To answer that question of what's wrong with the world Right? How did we go from this very good creation where mankind was in relationship and union with God, where there was no shame, no fear, or hiding to the world we know today? Right? So far in Genesis 1 and 2, we have had to put on our imagination hats to even conceive of what it could be like in this garden, of what it could be like with no shame, no fear, no hiding, no sin. Now we arrive in Genesis 3, and this is all too familiar. Shame, fear, hiding, sin. And so in these first 13 verses of chapter 3, we see three things. We see the anatomy of temptation, the terrible results of sin, and the posture of God. So first, the anatomy of temptation. This opening conversation between the serpent and the humans. Yes, both of them. Not just Eve, but both of them. Look at verse 6. She gave some to her husband who was with her. Who was with her? Adam is there. He's right there. This silent participant in this conversation and temptation. And this is important because Adam was the one who was supposed to communicate God's command to Eve. Eve wasn't created yet when God first gave this command to Adam. And so it's this ironic twist that the one who was in charge to proclaim God's word is silent in this whole conversation. And this conversation, this conversation of temptation in these first six verses centers around one question. Is God good? Is God good? That is the heart of the serpent's temptation. Is God good? Not is he real? Not is he God? Not are you sure that's even what he said? No, the, the serpent's opening question here 
in verse 1 is not a question of fact, but of goodness. Not, is that what he said? Do you remember that correctly? But did God really say that? Did he actually say that? He's hiding something from you. He's keeping something from you. You can't trust him. He's not good. That is the fundamental question of temptation. And what this passage is showing us about temptation from the very first sin to ever, every sin since is that it questions God's goodness, promising us goodness apart from him. And this promise is to be taken by self-autonomy. You can be like God. You can be like God. That's what this devastating climactic moment of verse six is getting at. This twisted irony. It says, so when the woman saw that the tree was good, and this is meant to echo in the reader, the iconic phrase of Genesis one, and God saw that it was good. God saw that it was good. Now, in the place of God is a human. And she saw that it was good. What we have here are these first humans assuming the place of God because they deny his goodness. What does it say? And she saw that it was good, and it was a delight to the eyes and to be desired to make one wise. That word desired is of the same word for covet. She coveted to be wise like God. And so denying God's goodness, right? Leaning into this serpent's question of, is God good? Can you trust him? They take the position of God and pronounce their own goodness. I will see what I delight and what I desire in, and I will say it is good. That is what's happening in this first chapter of sin. They take hold of the serpent's promise in verse five that you can be like God, and they say, yes, we can. And so they take and eat. And the way that the serpent goes about tempting them, doubting God's goodness, is by using and twisting God's word even better than they do, right? We've already talked about Adam, just silent. The one who was in charge to be a proclaimer of God's word is silent. And then we have what Eve says. And Eve's response, her quoting of God, actually lessens and adds on to God's word, right? This is what she says to, to the serpent's question of, did God actually say? She says, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but we shall not eat of the tree in the midst of the garden or touch it lest we die. So first, touch it. God never says that. She adds that on. And then secondly, when God proclaims this commandment, he says surely to both the positive and the negative. He says, you may surely eat of every tree in the garden that I've given you. And on the day you eat of this one tree, you will surely die. Whereas Eve says, yeah, we can eat of the trees of the garden, but if we eat or touch this one, lest we die, may we die. She is lessening God's word. The serpent, on the other hand, says God's word exactly. He quotes God's word exactly, just with a negative in front of it. God says, you will surely die. He says that exact thing with a not. You will not surely die. He is proclaiming God's word to a T, but lying about what he says. And this is the lie of the serpent. This is the temptation of the very first sin and of every sin since, that sin will not bring death. 
you will not surely die. No, it will bring life. It will bring goodness. You will live. You will find abundance. You will be like God. Whether explicitly or implicitly, the temptation of sin is the lie that it will bring life and not death. That it will bring flourishing. That I can find goodness and flourishing apart from God's design and commands. That he's keeping good from me. He's keeping you from flourishing. So be your own God. Make goodness of your own. You assume the place and you say, whatever I delight in, whatever I desire in, it is good. That is what sin is. And it never, ever delivers because it's a lie. Is God good? This is what temptation, what we're seeing here in Genesis 3 is what temptation looks like to turn away from God and make a goodness of our own. The Lord, your God, who made you, who created you, who intricately designed you, who knows exactly what you need. Can he be trusted? Is he good? Or is he holding me back from flourishing? Is he holding goodness away from me? Right? He has said that I made you to work in six days and rest in one. Is he holding back flourishing from me? Does he know my career aspirations? Is that good or can I find good apart from that? Y'all thought I was done with the Sabbath. I'm not. <laughs> no, okay. Um, he has said that sex is exclusively for covenant marriage. Is that good? Is he good? Is he holding back flourishing from me? Can I find life apart from that? Can I find it somewhere else? He has said that greed is death, but to give generously and care for the poor and needy is what it is to have a rich life. Is that good? Or is he keeping me back from flourishing? That is what temptation is. That's what the temptation to sin is. To subtly or very loudly say, I can't trust that God's good. And so I need to define goodness on my own. Every temptation to turn from God and define goodness ourselves at its root is doubting whether or not God is good. Sin is when our hearts deny God's goodness and make a goodness of our own, seeking our own flourishing. And now as we turn to the back half of our passage, we're going to see just what kind of flourishing we're able to make for ourselves. So we get to verse 7. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. Right, just seven verses after the unimaginable, beautiful statement at the end of chapter two that they were naked and were not ashamed. It's all changed. Their eyes were opened, and they knew that they were naked. The vast results of being their own God are devastating, is what we see in this back half. They are disconnected from themselves, disconnected from each other, disconnected from God. First themselves, they see their own nakedness and shame, these good bodies that God made, and they have to cover them and hide from the reality of their own very being. And so they make out of fig leaves a covering to hide from themselves. Now self-aware and self-conscious disconnected from the goodness and wholeness of God's design. They feel shame about themselves. 
they're disconnected from God as they run and hide from his presence, right? This remarkable imagery of being in the very presence of God in love and relationship and delighting is now worth hiding from, right? The majesty of Eden, the, the incredibleness of Eden that we cannot imagine is what it's like to just be there in the presence of God, to be in his presence with no shame, no fear. And now that very presence and union and relationship they flee from and hide in shame. And then they're disconnected from each other, blaming each other for all this chaos and sin, right? Shame has now entered the world. Nakedness, fear, hiding, right? What does Adam say? He says, I was afraid of you because I was naked and so I hid. And then he blames. God says, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of this tree? And what does Adam say? The woman you gave me, the woman you put here, God, right? Just a few verses ago, he was singing this song of this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. Now it's you put her here. This woman you gave me, she did this. And then God asked the woman and she does something similar with the serpent. This implied the serpent you created. He did this. He deceived me right? Death has come. Just as God said that in that day that they ate of it, they would surely die. They have a spiritual death, a relational and emotional death, and a physical death. Now, from this point forward, every human to ever live will die physically. This is the fruit of their own making. You like that pun? This is the fruit of eating the fruit that they have died, a spiritual death, fleeing from the presence of God, a relational, emotional death, that they are disconnected from themselves and each other, and a physical death ongoing forever, for every human to ever live. Right? That question of what's wrong with the world starts right here. I am. We are. That this turning away from God has brought shame and death and fear and hiding and nakedness and pain and suffering into the world. And yet, even in this, in this shattering of shalom, this breaking of the creation of the world that God had made, even here, we get to see the posture and character of God on display from the very onset from the very inception of the fall. Next week, we'll get to the last half of chapter three, where God pronounces curses and blessings, and we get to see the promise of the seed, the seed who would crush the serpent. What is called the proto-euangelion, the first gospel, this first glimpse of the good news. That's what we'll see next week. But even here in our passage, even before that, we get this glimpse of a first gospel of good news. So don't miss this. Look at verse eight and nine, right? So we ended verse seven, that they were, eyes were open and they were naked and shamed. And then beginning verse eight, and they heard the sound of the Lord God. There's a shift here. So, so far in, in chapter three, the name for God has been the generic name of God, just Elohim, just God. Now, starting here, we get the covenant name of God. Like we just talked about those covenant baptisms of being a part of the family of God. This is what it's supposed to invoke in the reader of this redeeming, loving covenant God who says, I will be your God and you will be my people. Now we pick up with that name of God, of the Lord God. 
they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and woman hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But, but the Lord. They hid, but the Lord God called to the man and said, where are you? Now we must be very careful not to impute a voice to God that is not his. Because we now live in this world of sin and shame and brokenness, right? We could easily impute the voice of parents or an authority or our own inner critic or the voice of the enemy to God here. Reading this as, where are you? That is not how God goes after Adam and Eve here. No, does the Lord know where they are? Is he confused about where they are? Can he not find them in the garden? No, right? As the psalmist says, where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths of the earth, in hell, you are there. No, God is not lost. They are lost. And he comes after them. He seeks after them from the very onset of the sin of the world. God moves toward his people and says, where are you? In other words, do you know where you are, Adam? Do you know where you are, Eve? Where are you, my child? Who told you that you were naked? The character of God, the posture and movement and goodness of God is on display from the very inception of sin and death and nakedness and shame in the world. They have just brought death to the entire world, to everything that God has made and said, it is good, they have wrecked. They have shattered that shalom. And yet God moves toward them out of his goodness and love. He calls out to them. He seeks after them. He runs to them. He runs to them and their hiding and their shame and says, where are you? That is who our Lord is. The one who seeks and calls out and chases after. They hid, but the Lord. That's the gospel. We hid, we sinned, we hid in our shame and brokenness, but the Lord, but the Lord called out. And the reason this is so crucial to see here in these verses is because the way that we fight against this temptation of this pull to deny God's goodness and find goodness on our own is to behold God's goodness. Right? If temptation is this doubting, this questioning of, is God good? Then the way to fight that, the way to remedy that, is to behold God in his goodness. To behold God in the goodness of his word, in his works, in our lives. That is why every week we gather here, we behold the goodness of God in Jesus. That is the preeminent, the the climactic moment of God's goodness on display is in Jesus. That's why we at Midtown will never graduate from the gospel. We will never move on. We will never say we've had enough. We gather here every week to behold God's goodness on display through Jesus. And it's so fitting that in the next few weeks, we're gonna see next week the, this promise of the seed. And then in Palm Sunday and Good Friday and Easter Sunday, we're gonna see that seed in the flesh in his triumphal entry in his death and his resurrection. 
That is where we're going. And the reason is, the reason that this good news, this goodness of God running after his people is because there's another Adam. There's another temptation. There's another garden. There's another tree, right? The story of Jesus, the gospel, can be told through this idea of Jesus as the second Adam. That's what Paul calls Jesus in Romans 5. That as this first Adam failed and brought sin and death into the world, Jesus, very God in the flesh, is the second Adam who will not fail, who will not turn away from the goodness of God. The ministry of Jesus begins with Jesus being tempted by the enemy, by the same enemy, tempted in the same way with the lust of the eyes, with the lust of the flesh, with the lust of pride. And to every temptation, the enemy throws to Jesus. Jesus does not turn and deny God's goodness, but says, thus says the Lord. No, this is what the Lord has said. That is how the ministry of Jesus begins. And then he goes from there proclaiming good news to the broken, to the shamed, to the dead in sin, to the suffering, saying there is a redemption and a restoration to be in the presence of God, to be made whole, that I will give you an eternal covering. I will cover your shame and nakedness and you will be restored into the presence of God. And at the end of Jesus' life, where we're headed here in a few weeks, we get to see Jesus in another garden, in the garden of Gethsemane. In Matthew 26, this is what Jesus in the garden, right before he's crucified, this is what happens. Then Jesus went with them, the disciples, to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little further, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. You see, Adam in the garden says, Not as you will, God, but as I will. And he takes from the tree and brings death. Jesus in the garden says, not my will, but yours, O Lord, be done. And then he gives himself on a tree to bring life. He hangs naked on a tree so that we who have been made naked and shamed by this first tree may be covered, may be freed from death and sin and be restored into the relationship with God and with ourselves and with each other. Right, this is the goodness of God chasing us down, seeking us out, calling out, where are you? There's this hymn, I'll end with this, there's this hymn from the 1800s called Go to Dark Gethsemane. And it begins like this. Go to dark Gethsemane, you who feel the tempter's power. Your redeemer's conflict see. Watch with him one bitter hour. Turn not from his griefs away. Learn of Jesus Christ to pray. And the hymn goes on to follow Jesus, beaten and bound and arraigned, to follow him to Calvary, to see him hanging there, God's sacrifice on that tree, and to go to the tomb to see him risen, 
saying, don't turn away from his sufferings, from his shame that he bore for you. And the point of it, the point of this hymn is this, you who feel the tempter's power, you who feel the tempter leading you to deny God's goodness, to define goodness on your own, to turn away, you who feel that power of the tempter, behold your redeemer, behold God in his goodness, behold Jesus who took upon himself the nakedness and shame and sin and death that we may be restored to that very presence of God that we so long to have in those opening chapters of Eden. See him in the garden, see him on the tree of Calvary, see his empty tomb, see him risen. Maybe you're struggling over a very specific sin that you feel like temptation is crouching behind every corner, that it is killing you and you cannot defeat it. Maybe amidst the curse and fallenness of this world that has wreaked havoc because of sin, you feel that pain and suffering and you're having a hard time believing whether or not God is good. Maybe you're struggling to believe God's design and what it is to flourish, how he's made you. Friends, run to Jesus. Behold your God. Behold the goodness of God on display in the life and work of Jesus. We have a friend in Jesus who though he never fell to temptation, let the curse of sin bear on him that we may be free of the curse to behold our God in all of his glory and goodness. Let's pray. Lord, we are weak and frail and broken. This world is not how it ought to be and we are not how we ought to be and we feel that deeply. Like your disciples in the garden at Gethsemane, we can't even watch and pray with you for one hour. Our weakness is too much for us. And yet you tell us that your power is made perfect through our weakness. Would you open our eyes to know, to know that you are the one who covers our nakedness and shame, to know you are the one who redeems the curse of sin to know and behold our good God who moves toward us even in our hiding, even in our shame, even in our sin, the God who calls sinners his own and makes them sons and daughters for eternity. In the name of your son, Jesus, we pray, amen.